The reading this week is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. Um, and if you'd like to read along, you can find it on page 898 in the, in the Blue Pew Bibles there. So John 11, 45 to 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. This is the word of God. God. Have a seat. And would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, as we come... Uh, now to sit under your word, we again uh, are mindful of our need. Um, Spirit, you have inspired uh, these words. Uh, Lord, you have undertaken to preserve them. Uh, It's it's amazing to us um, that we have your word. It's amazing to us that you are not a God who is silent, uh, but who has spoken and who continues to speak uh, through his word by your spirit. Uh, And Spirit, we pray that you would Uh, illuminate our hearts. Uh, Give us eyes to see uh, what you would say uh, to your people. Help me uh, to rightly understand the Word of God and to to clearly articulate um, what you need us to hear uh, today. Father, as we come before you in prayer, uh, as you've commanded us to do, um, I agree with Mita, sometimes it is is all too much. Um, The events of the world and, and, and and, and the events in our lives uh, can all feel uh, like too much. Um, and so it is good to be able to lift them up to a God who is uh, sovereign, uh, a God who is in control, uh, a God who knows all things, who, who has known all things uh, for all eternity. Father, we continue uh, to lift up to you the people of Ukraine. Um, as we watch... Um, with grief, uh, with concern, with increasing horror, um, as we have seen um, 
civilians uh, in such large numbers uh, killed in this, in this past week. Lord, we, we pray for mercy. Um, we pray that you would bring this to an end um, and quickly. Uh, we pray, we continue to pray um, for the authorities, uh, for the leaders in our nation and in other nations around the world. Um, we specifically pray uh, for Vladimir Putin that you would turn his heart away from this war and turn him toward peace. Uh, but we pray for wisdom uh, as nations deliberate uh, and, and take action. Um, Father, we pray um, for uh, those of us here in our community, um, in this room, and, and, and those that we know who are, who are close to us, um, who are directly impacted, who have friends, who have family. Um, Father, we pray for, for mercy. We pray for safety. Um, Father, we pray for your church. Uh, we thank you uh, again that, that today, as every Sunday, your people were gathering uh, and they were worshiping you, um, that they were uh, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, uh, that they were singing your praises, uh, even in the midst uh, of such danger. Father, we pray for protection. We pray for faithfulness. Um, we pray that you would sanctify the suffering, uh, that you would work in it, uh, even as we pray for you to bring it to an end. Um, Father, this is, this is the one thing that is on our hearts most um, commonly, the thing that we have all had our attention drawn to. But, but as I said, there are many needs. Um, there are many concerns. Um, there are uh, anxieties. Um, there are griefs. There are um, issues with health, uh, issues at work, issues in our, in our families. Um, and, and Father, we, uh, we lift these things up to you. Thank you that in your word you tell us uh, that you care for us. Um, thank you that you have explicitly told us that, that, that you, though God of the universe, high and lifted up, um, who cannot be contained by heaven and earth, nevertheless uh, are with the brokenhearted and the afflicted, and you draw near uh, to those who are suffering. Um, Father, we pray that you would give us that same heart. Help us to have the mind of Christ, um, and the heart of a God who is near to the brokenhearted and the suffering. Help us to come alongside of one another uh, in prayer, uh, with a meal, uh, with a conversation, with a hug, um, to be able to bear one another's sufferings and to be able to weep with those who weep. Um, we thank you that we can also rejoice with those who rejoice. We thank you that we have much to be grateful for, much to rejoice in. Um, Again, Father, it, 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 it feels like too much. Um, and so we thank you uh, that you know uh, and that you see uh, and that you remember. I pray, Father, uh, again, that you would use your word now uh, to shape us. Uh, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in the adult ed class earlier today on the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, we talked briefly about things like the Trinity uh, and about the person of Jesus, fully God and fully human. Dan gave us a, a, a very brief history um, of how the church had uh, worked through some of those things and how it took centuries 
um, for us uh, to, to work these things out. Um, because there's no one passage, you know, when it comes to the Trinity, there's no one passage that says God is three in one and one in three. And so it took the church a long time to work through the totality of Scripture um, to be able to, to say that. Well, thankfully, there are some um, things that are just as deep and just as mysterious, things that we would not know or be able to work out on our own without Scripture, um, that are stated pretty plainly. And I want to draw your attention to one of those. Um, what we're going to talk about today as we uh, look at uh, this, this, uh, this last section of chapter 11 uh, in John's Gospel um, as you can tell, you know, we are, we are very much on the road to Jerusalem. We are very much in, in, at, at the point where the conflict uh, is going to reach its zenith. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is the question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die? Um, and I want to give you at least part of the punchline just right up front. Because what we're going to see um, is that on the one hand, Jesus is put to death. Um, by people who are driven by fear. And at the same time, he's also handed over by his Father. Uh, he is given for us uh, by God himself. Uh, and these two things aren't in conflict. So here's what I, I want to draw. There's, there's, there's a verse that tells us this. Um, the very first sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost... Um, if there was ever a time for celebration, you would think the day of Pentecost would be it, right? I mean, Jesus has been risen, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Spirit has been given, it's amazing. You would think, like, if there's ever a time for just pure celebration and, and praise, um, this would be it. But that's not what Peter does with his first sermon. He goes for the jugular. Um, he goes straight to this. Here's Acts 2.22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Just goes right after him. And he, he keeps going like that for a while. Um, in, in, in Acts 2. And, and you might know that you know, their response is, what do we do? Um, he says, repent. Believe the good news. Be baptized. It's this, it's, this, it's this great scene. But what I want to draw your attention to, did you notice what he said about why Jesus died? He said, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, on the one hand, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So for Peter, there's no conflict between these two things. Jesus was the victim of an injustice. And Jesus was given up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge from eternity of God. Um, and we're going to see both of those things uh, on display uh, here in this passage. Here's... Here's, here's, here's the three, I'm going to use um, Peter's language here. Jesus was delivered up. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus, on the one hand, is delivered up because of the fears of lawless men. 
He's delivered up by fear, not fear of the Lord. We've talked a lot about the fear of the Lord last fall. This is not that. Um, he's delivered up for the fears of lawless men. Secondly, he's delivered up to save a nation. And we're going to spend some time here because there's this amazing thing that Caiaphas, the high priest, says where he says so much more than he knows uh, as he says it. But thirdly, we're going to see that Jesus was delivered up by the shared unanimous love of the triune God for his people, for you. So that's where we're going. So, first of all, Jesus was delivered up for the fears of lawless men. So what's going on um, in this passage? So, the last several signs that Jesus um, has performed, right? John, John has laid out all of these signs that demonstrate who Jesus is and his authority. And the last few have been particularly public, right? The healing of the blind man uh, was, was public, and the Pharisees got involved. They knew what was going on. They questioned him, right? And now he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And there was a crowd there to see it. Um, there had been people who had gone to console Mary and Martha, the loss of their brother. They were all present. Um, and so these things are really attracting attention. And so it says uh, that the Pharisees um, and the chief priest gathered the council. And they said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This group that is gathered together, this council, this is something called the Sanhedrin. Um, Rome had basically allowed Israel um, quite a lot of autonomy, especially when it came to their religious life. Um, you know, they had kind of set up, you know, a puppet uh, governor, uh, Herod, you have other governors like Pontius Pilate, who we'll meet later. But in terms of ordering their religious affairs, the, the Sanhedrin, which consisted of uh, the Pharisees on the one hand, uh, and then another group called Sadducees, these are the chief priests. Um, these guys had a lot of autonomy and a lot of freedom uh, to run things uh, for themselves. Um, these two groups... Pharisees on the one hand, and the chief priests, or the Sadducees again, they were worried about two very different things. We've seen the Pharisees a lot more in the Gospel of John, and we know what they're worried about. We know what they don't like about Jesus. They don't like the fact that he breaks the Sabbath. Um, they don't like uh, the fact that he has spoken of himself um, in such a way that makes himself equal with God. That's blasphemy. So their, their main concerns are, are more religious in nature. Um, but the Sadducees, they were the ones with the political power. They were the ones with the wealth. They were, they were, you know, sort of the more of the aristocracy. They were the ones that had a lot to lose um, if Rome were ever to change the arrangement. And what they're worried about um, is if, if all the people see what Jesus is doing, and if they all believe in him... Um, then this is going to get whipped up into a fervor, and Rome is going, to, is going to conclude from this, you guys can't manage your own affairs. You can't keep the peace. Um, and we don't want to have to bother with you know, sending in uh, you know, Roman authorities uh, to quell some uprising. So forget it. You're out. Um, and as they say, they'll take away our place uh, and 
our nation. Now, here's the interesting thing. Think about what this means. Um, the Messiah is supposed to be the hope. It's what they're all waiting for. They're all waiting for God to send someone who will deliver them. And they, and they would tend to think of that in political terms. We want to be delivered from Rome, right? Um, that's what they're waiting for. That's what they're hoping for. The tragic irony that's revealed in what they say here is set aside for the moment whether you like this particular Messiah. Like set aside, you know, whether you like the fact that Jesus keeps breaking the Sabbath, you know, or, or what have you. Um, when the Messiah comes, isn't this how it's going to be? Isn't it supposed to be a revolution? Isn't it supposed to be um, a disposition of, of Roman authority? What the Sanhedrin is showing here is that they are actually more committed to the status quo where they have some measure of power than they are to the hope for the Messiah that is supposed to be driving their entire lives. Um, they're more committed to remaining where they are, which is somewhat comfortable, uh, than they are to holding out hopes that God is actually going to fulfill um, his, his promises. The other ironic thing, of course, is that of all the messianic figures that came along, um, you, you probably know this, Jesus went out of his way to say, I'm actually not here to get rid of Rome. You know, they asked him questions like, should we pay our taxes? And he said, yes, he gave that brilliant answer, right? The coin has Caesar's image on it, so give it to him. But give to God what is God's, right? Um, so, just another irony, Jesus should have been maybe the least uh, threatening. But this is what they're worried about. This is the fear um, that's driving them. This sort of easily brings to mind, I think, for us, the spectacle of Christians who are more committed to preserving their own power in the world. Uh, than they are to faithfulness, than they are to holiness, than they are to the gospel. Um, it is easiest to think about the politics, right? Um, and we know uh, that the spectacle of Christians uh, who have been more concerned with preserving political power than maintaining a faithful witness, we know that that's been extremely damaging. Uh, David Brooks wrote an article in the New York Times just a few weeks ago um, where he quoted Russell Moore, um, who was formerly uh, the head of kind of the, the policy arm of the Southern Baptist Church before he left it. Um, and, and Russell Moore, what he said is, what we're seeing in the church now, we're seeing young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they don't believe what the church teaches, but because they believe that the church itself doesn't believe what the church teaches. Um, that's kind of the, 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 that's the obvious, the attention-grabbing uh, example uh, for, how this, for how this can go wrong. 
Um, but I want us to think a little bit more personally. Um, where is it that each of us is tempted to compromise? Where, where is it that each of us can tend to be more committed uh, to a status quo in which we're comfortable and in which we have some measure of power um, and don't count the cost of following Jesus? Um, Bradley quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, I think it was last week, um, just that, that, that famous statement that Bonhoeffer made that when, when the Lord calls a man to himself, he bids him to come and die, to be ready to die, to take up his cross. Um, where is it that each of us are driven more by our fear of what we could lose in following Jesus than by the fear of the Lord? Um, that is where these things come into conflict. There's this, there's this song, uh, it's a Christmas song, um, by a, a, a band that I love called Ordinary Time. Uh, they actually originated in, um, well, some of them are at, at Labrie out in Southboro. Um, but they've got this great song um, about the shepherds, uh, and there's this line in there, you know, from when the angels show up in all their glory, and they say it was the fear that drew, that, sorry, I got the, wrong, the line wrong. It was the fear that made our fears afraid. The fear that made our fears afraid. Um, where is it that each of us needs to meditate more on what it means to fear the Lord in a way that would make our other fears afraid uh, and would drive them out? I'll just remind you, we so often fall prey to this lie, right? We fall prey to this lie, uh, the original lie, the one that was in the garden, uh, the one that the serpent came with, said, God is not really going to take care of you. He does not love you. He can't take care of you. And that means you're on your own. And so you better get to scheming. Um, that's what we see happening uh, here in this passage. So on the one hand, Jesus is delivered up um, because of the fears uh, of, these, of these men who are more worried about losing their position and their power than they are uh, in, in, in faithfulness. But the second thing we see is that Jesus is delivered to save a nation. And this is where I want us to look at what, what Caiaphas says. Um, Caiaphas, he was high priest that year. He says, you know nothing at all. It's a nice way to start a speech. Uh, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So here's what he thinks he's saying. It's pretty straightforward. He's saying, look, the solution is obvious. If this man is causing problems, if, if this man is potentially going to start an uprising that will draw the attention of Rome, it's simple. Get rid of him. Drop your scruples. The ends justify the means. It's better that he should die than we all should die. That's uh, what he thinks that he's saying. But then John immediately says, he didn't say this of his own accord. He was the high priest. He occupied this office. And God, in his sovereignty, was able to say much more through this office, through the high priest, uh, than Caiaphas realized that he was saying. Um, 
Because, of course, when Caiaphas says that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, he's thinking entirely in political terms. But that's only a sliver of what's going on. In fact, it's not what's going on at all. Jesus is going to die for the people, not in a political sense, but as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Because as Jesus has already told us back in chapter 8, the real problem isn't Rome. The real problem uh, isn't slavery uh, in a political sense. The real problem is our slavery to sin. Back in chapter 8, you remember, he was having this dispute uh, with, with the Jews. Um, they said, we're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. And he says, you don't understand. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Every one of you needs to be set free. I want to unpack a little bit what this means. Um, the Bible talks about sin in at least four different ways. It's at least four different images uh, that, it, that it gives us. Um, on the one hand, it talks about sin as being like a debt that we incur. It uses economic imagery sometimes. We run up this huge debt. Um, sometimes, on the other hand, it talks about more legal terms. It's a guilt. We're in a, we're, we're in a guilty state before God. Sometimes it talks about sin as though it were a disease, or even more seriously than a disease, a death, like a condition that we need to be healed from. Um, and sometimes it talks about sin as though sin is this enemy power that, that dominates us, that enslaves us, right? Um, now, because it talks about sin in these four different ways, guess what? It talks about salvation in those four different ways also. We talk the most about the legal sense of salvation. We talk about justification. We talk about being declared righteous and freed from guilt. We talked about it earlier in the service. And that is essential. Um, that, that, is, that is at the, the center. I agree with Luther um, that getting that right, that's the, the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Um, but because salvation is so great, because salvation, you know, Jesus... Uh, earlier in this gospel, talked about it as being nothing less than being born again, right? a whole new creation. Um, unsurprisingly, um, it talks about salvation um, in, in many, many different ways. It's so rich. And I want to read just one passage to you. Um, this is amazing. Paul manages to fit all of those different kinds of salvation into the space of just three verses. Um, Colossians 2, 13 to 15. Here's what he says. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Three verses, and he managed to talk about how we were dead. There's the condition, right? We were dead in our trespasses. 
and God made us alive. Uh, we were guilty because of our trespasses, the legal demands uh, of, of the law, but God has forgiven us. We incurred this enormous debt, but he canceled the record of that debt and set it aside. And then the enemy power, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Caiaphas had no sense that when he talks about Jesus dying for the nation, that it would be this kind of a salvation, uh, that it would be this rich, that this much uh, would be going on. But God is able to speak uh, through him uh, and, and, and to say that. And then John adds one more thing, and I want us to notice this. Um, John says, uh, so at verse 50, well, the end of verse 51 again. So he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Then he says, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He's not just dying for the nation that Caiaphas has in view. Um, Jesus has already said another way that the Bible talks about him being our Savior is that he's our shepherd. I guess that's another image. He's our shepherd. And remember what he said back in John 10? He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Salvation doesn't even stop with each of us individually being set free and having our debt forgiven and being made alive. That wasn't enough for God. He didn't just save for himself a bunch of individuals. He saved for himself a people. And as it says here, he's to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is why we always follow the absolution of sin with the passing of the peace, right? We go straight from that individual, you have been forgiven, to and therefore we have peace with each other. Because that same salvation, that same forgiveness is making us into one, making us one people. So Jesus is delivered up on the one hand because of the fears of lawless men. He's delivered up to save a nation in a sense far deeper than Caiaphas could possibly have understood. But the last thing that we see in this passage is we see that he is also delivered up by the shared and unanimous love of the triune God. Now, where do we see that? It's a little bit oblique. The last several verses, verse 54 to the end, seems kind of mundane. You know, we leave the council. Um, apparently, the council's plans are, are known enough that it says, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. And he goes to this town called, called Ephraim. And then it says the Passover was at hand, and they're watching to see if he'll show up. You know, kind of like back in chapter 7, when they were watching to see if he would show up at the, um, at the Feast of Dedication. Um, here's the point. Here's the point. 
all the plotting in the world isn't going to put Jesus to death. We've seen this already. Like, there's, there's been past times when Jesus said things that really made people angry, right? And they immediately took up stones, and it just says Jesus passed through their hands and just kind of left, right? We, we've seen several times Jesus is not going to die until it's time. Jesus knows when his hour is coming, and it's only when his hour has arrived um, that he's going to be finally handed over. He's going to be put to death by these lawless men, as Peter said in his sermon, but not until he says so. Um, I just read one verse from, from John 10 when he was talking about uh, gathering together the other sheep that are not of this fold. The next thing that he said uh, in John 10 was this. He said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received for my Father. Um, this book talks, uh, this, excuse me, this passage talks about Caiaphas being high priest that year. That doesn't mean that Caiaphas was only high priest for a year. It was a much longer term than that. It means he was high priest in that year in the year, the fateful year. Um, there's a right year for Jesus to die, and there's a suggestion here that there's a right season also. Um, he's going to wait for Passover. He's going to wait until they're asking themselves, why is tonight different from any other night before he's betrayed and before what the Passover was always pointing at, that lamb, that sacrificial lamb, he would finally fulfill that. Um, he's, in, he's in total control here. Um, you need to know two things about this. I'll close with this. Um, what this means, on the one hand, um, because we're seeing not just the machinations of lawless men to commit an injustice, but because we're seeing the sovereign love of the triune God for the world. This means that we don't have conflict between Jesus and his Father. Um, we don't, on the one hand, have Jesus um, dying in order to placate a cold and unloving Father who needs to be convinced, who's, who's, who's looking at you with a certain amount of grumpiness and, and who needs to, be, needs to have his mind changed. No, no, no. It was his love. It was the love of the Father that sent Jesus into the world in the first place. And did it, Paul says in Romans 5, did it while we were sinners, while we were his enemies. He loved you and gave his son for you while you were opposed uh, to him. But then the other thing you need to know on the flip side is that Jesus isn't dying unwillingly, right? The Father isn't forcing him to do anything uh, that he's unwilling to do. He dies, Hebrew tells us, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. Which, if you think about 
what that means, what, what joy, what is there that Jesus had to gain from his death? What is it that he didn't have before he left his father's side? Well, he's told us already. He has other sheep that he needs to gather in. He's a shepherd. He's a powerful shepherd from whose hand none of us can be snatched. The, the, the one thing that he had to gain, the joy set before him, was you, was us, was a people that God was saving for himself. And because this is the shared love of the triune God from all eternity, the last thing you need to know, I guess this is three things, the last thing you need to know um, is that there is nothing that you have done or can do or will do that can surprise God, that can catch him off guard, that can thwart his love for you. He sent his son into the world knowing everything about you, what you have done and what you will do. Jesus went to the cross willingly, knowing those things. Um, there is never anything that you can do that you cannot immediately turn to him and confess and ask for forgiveness and hear, it's already paid for. I knew about that. It's already paid for. This table represents the access. It represents the nourishment that we need to receive. Um, each week from our Father. Can we pray together before we come to this table?